Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigSceneDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Welcome to this episode of Tim Coffeen Talks IndyCar and Racing History. During each program, Tim will take you behind the scenes and share stories and memories from his long career in the world of IndyCar competition. With seven championship rings to his credit, Tim not only understands auto racing history, he has lived it. And now, for the most famous words in racing history. Drivers! Start your engines! Welcome to the first episode of Tim Coffeen Talks IndyCar and Racing History. My name is Joe Ziemba, and I'm honored that Tim Coffeen has asked me to participate in this wonderful idea of a program to share his vast history of IndyCar racing. Tim, you're here. Welcome. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Joe. Uh, it's it's an honor to be here. I'm glad to be here with you, and I'm really looking forward to doing this, believe me. Thanks, Tim. And what we're going to do every episode is ask Tim some questions, and if anyone who's listening would like to maybe make some suggestions, just go to the website for Tim on the Sports History Network under Tim Coffeen Talks IndyCar and Racing History. And there'll be a variety of ways for you to leave a question or an idea or just a comment for Tim Coffeen. But the Sports History Network is very, very excited to have Tim Coffeen as a member of our family. As many of you know, he has seven championship rings from his lifetime in, in IndyCar racing. He's worked with some of the greatest drivers, mechanics, and owners that the sport has seen. And my favorite part about Tim, and I should mention we're cousins, so uh, I've tried to follow his career for the last many decades. And knowing that he not only knows IndyCar history, he's lived it. So, Tim, if you're ready, we've got some questions for you tonight. Ready, Joe. We thought we'd, for this first episode, go into the history of the Indianapolis 500. Tim is knows quite a bit about that, as you've already heard, and has done some extensive research to find out exactly how the race started and where it came about from. Why is it in Indianapolis? So, Tim, the first question today is, what person or group was behind the beginning of the Indy 500 and the building of the Speedway itself? Well, Joe, before we talk about how the Indianapolis Motor Speedway came to be, I believe it's important to understand Indiana's passion for, for and love affair with the automobile. On uh, July 4th, 1894, a Hoosier by the name of Elwood Haynes is credited with road testing and an automobile of his own creation. This occurred in Kokomo, Indiana, which is 40 miles north of Indianapolis. Haynes drove the car he built for a mile and a half 
and he averaged seven miles an hour. Uh, news of this caused automobile fever to catch on quickly and exploded in Indiana, and in particular, Indianapolis. Indy quickly became a hotbed of auto manufacturing. Uh, Indy eventually vied with Detroit as the automotive capital of the United States. Over time, 100 companies manufactured automobiles in Indiana. A gentleman by the name of Carl Fisher was the driving force behind the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. 1899, he owned the first automobile to be driven in Indianapolis. Fisher was also pals with the legendary Barney Oldfield. They raced cars against horses at county fairs. In 1904, Fisher is credited with inventing the automobile headlight. Before this, cars used lanterns and candles, which didn't work too well. So this invention of his made him a multimillionaire, and his company was called Prestolites. Fisher was an automotive racing enthusiast. He traveled to England in 1907 and visited the newly constructed Brooklyn's racetrack. Brooklyn's was a 2.75-mile high-bank oval, and legend has it that this is what planted the vision of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway in Carl Fisher's mind. When he returned to the United States in December of 1908, along with his partners James Allison, A.C. Newby, and Frank Wheeler, they purchased 320 acres of farmland for $80,000 at 16th and Georgetown Road, northwest of downtown Indianapolis. They hired a civil engineer out of New York named P.T. Andrews to design the two-and-a-half-mile oval. Construction of the track began in March of 1909. The original surface was a mixture of tar and crushed stone. In August of 1909, three days of racing were held, and it was a disaster. The track surface pr proved to be both unsatisfactory and lethal. One driver, two riding mechanics, and two spectators were killed. The national and local press reacted with outrage and called the track Fisher's Folly. Fisher immediately decided to pave the two and a half miles with bricks. He and his partners had to ante up another $200,000 for 3.2 million bricks, therefore the name Brickyard. The track was deemed race-worthy in December of 2009, and Lewis Strang in a Fiat turned a lap over 90 miles an hour, even though the temperature was 9 degrees. In 1910, the Speedway ran races on Memorial Day, the 4th of July, and Labor Day. Accidents were held to a minimum, but the crowds got smaller with each event. Fisher's partner, James Allison, notably Allison Transmission, part of General Motors today, is credited with the revolutionary idea of running a single event each year. It's very interesting how the distance of 500 miles was chosen. Fisher said that that's how much daylight they would have to run the race, seven hours. And he was spot on because the first 500-mile race took six hours and 42 minutes to complete. On Memorial Day, May 30, 1911, the first Indy 500 was held. It paid $25,000 in prize money and attracted 80,000 spectators. Interestingly, most races in those days were started from a dead stop like a drag race is today. Fisher came up with the idea of a flying start. He drove the pace car and brought the field down for a rolling start. It was another first in racing history. Interestingly, Ray Haroon was a talented driver. He won the first 500. He was also an engineer and a mechanic. 
He designed the Marmon Wasp, which was the only purpose-built race car in the field. All the other cars were modified street automobiles. Haroon believed if he built a single-seat car with no riding mechanic, it could be narrower, more aerodynamic. Every other machine was a modified street vehicle and carried a riding mechanic. Pre-race, his fellow competitors declared the Marmon Wasp to be a hazard because there's no riding mechanic. In those days, riding mechanics would signal the driver that someone was coming up behind him or was next to them, and the riding mechanic also monitored the gauges. Haroon's engineering talent surfaced, and he invented the very first rearview mirror, which satisfied race officials. The mirror can be seen today on the Marmon Wasp at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. I think one of the more interesting parts of the first Indy 500 was a gentleman named Cyrus Patchkey. Somehow this guy has fallen between the cracks of Indy 500 and racing history. Cyrus Patchkey was 21 years old. He'd won a bunch of endurance races on the East Coast. Several teams offered Cyrus Patchkey rides for the first 500, and he declined. But when Howard Marmon, who owned the Marmon Company that Ray Haroon and also his teammate Joe Dawson drove for, he contacted Cyrus Patchkey and, and offered him to be Ray Haroon's relief driver. Haroon jumped at the opportunity because he knew of Patchkey's uh, uh, reputation and ability. They'd raced against each other on the East Coast. Ray Haroon started out with a conservative strategy, and he was over a lap behind uh, in seventh place about the 75th lap of the race when he brought the car in for relief to this kid. And Cyrus Patchkey just turned 21, newly wed, left his wife off with his mom, drove to the speedway, had never seen the track, had never seen the Marmon Wasp. Well, he gets in the car, relieves Haroon, and he drives the car from seventh to first and takes the lead in 30 laps and turns the car back over to Haroon in the lead. Haroon said the easiest races you run are the ones you win. So Joe Dawson is running back in the pack as Haroon's teammate. And Howard Marmon gets Cyrus Patsky to relieve Joe Dawson. Cyrus Patsky takes Joe Dawson's car from midfield up to second place behind Ray Haroon. Cyrus Patsky, um, he's he wasn't photographed in victory lane and and he basically disappeared from the face of the earth but uh he went his wife talked him into quitting racing and he raised the family uh and he never raced again so it's interesting to me that this guy relieved the car that was a lap behind and brought it to the lead and then turned it back over to the driver ray haroon who won the race and then he relieved haroon's teammate and brought that car up through the field to second place behind Maroon. And I, I just think it's it's a magnificent story. Uh, the Indy 500, that was the first one. And it forevermore, that was 111 years ago. The race has been held on Memorial Day weekend. And uh, the first 500, there's many things that, uh, like the rolling start, and Ray Haroon invented the rearview mirror, and the interesting... Uh, History on Cyrus Patchkey, I think, is uh, it's all part of the Indy lore. It's amazing that one driver <laughs> basically raced for two different teams, or the same team, but he was drove two different cars. I just find that utterly amazing. So wonderful research on that, Tim. Thank you. 
Thanks. I think it's amazing that he had never seen the track. Yeah. And he had never seen Marmon's, like I stated earlier, Haroon's car was the only purpose-built race car in the race. And he had never seen the track. He had never driven the car. He gets in the car. It's a lap behind. And he drives it in 30 laps from seventh place to first. Gets out of that car. And he gets in his teammate's car. He drives that from mid-pack to second place behind the car he had driven to the lead. I think that's pretty outstanding stuff. <laughs> oh, amazing. Hey, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned that there were mechanics that were driving in the in the car actually with the driver, uh, that they would be on the lookout. But how long did that last, Tim? Well, riding mechanics, interestingly, uh, Haroon, get, did, Haroon and Patchkey drove that car solo. No one was in the car with them. Uh, that was the only car in the race in 1911 like that. Every other car had an onboard riding mechanic. So they made a rule after that race for the 500, and they went from uh, 1912, the next 500, to 1922, I believe, where it required the riding mechanic ride with the driver. And then from 23 to to 29, they were solo. They were just the driver in the car. And then for some reason in 30 – they went back to uh, a riding mechanic. So from 1930 to 1937, there was riding mechanics required two-man cars. And the riding mechanic, uh, it was a very, very dangerous job. And interestingly, uh, if you look through history, a lot of the great drivers started out as riding mechanics. And also, if you look through the history of the Speedway, there was a lot of officials and famous racing people that were they were riding mechanics before anything else. I think you had to be a little bit, not saying you had to screw loose, but <laughs> you had to be awful, awful brave to climb in a car that's running. I mean, when uh, in 1909, uh, the first over you know 90 mile an hour lap, that car was going 111 on the straightaway in December in nine degrees temperature, and you're riding along with a guy with no seat belts on oh. and a uh, cotton helmet with a sponge stuck in the top of it and a pair of goggles on right next to a guy at those speeds. You had to be slightly <laughs> insane, I'd say. <laughs> wow. Racing back then. That's just uh, truly incredible. You know, over the years, the Indy 500, of course, has improved safety conditions. The speeds have gone up and your career has lasted for decades. Are there any certain drivers from the past that you greatly admire? Sure. As a kid, I read the history a lot. Uh, there was a gentleman named Floyd Clymer. Uh, he did the Indy 500 yearbook for years. He also wrote a lot of books about the history of the track. Uh, he was he was the go-to guy about the history of the 500. And uh, I, when I read his books, you'd read about the Tom uh, Tommy Milton uh, was the first two-time winner in the 20s, and Louis Meyer, uh, Wilbur Shaw, and Maury Rose were all three-time winners. Uh, Bill Vukovic was two-time winner. You'd read about all these great drivers as a kid. But growing up in Indy, uh, we moved to Indianapolis in the fall of 57. So my first year in Indy, I was five years old in 58. I remember Jimmy Bryan winning the 500. And uh, Jimmy Bryan was the winningest IndyCar driver of the 50s. He won 23 races, I believe. He was three-time national champion. He won the 58 500. He was a, a the Arizona Cowboys, what they call him. He was a legend. Tony Buttenhausen, your dad put me on the phone to him when I was eight years old because you lived in 
Evergreen Park and Tony lived in Tinley Park and I got to speak to Tony on the telephone and then I ended up working for his his sons years later so uh, they influenced me and then uh, growing up in the 60s when I really got into racing uh, Parnelli Jones and AJ Foyt and Mario Andretti came along in the late 60s uh, these guys really, Bobby Unzer, uh, they were my heroes as kids. And they all, I mean, they heavily influenced me on, on wanting to be involved in racing. Uh, I'd say two drivers in particular influenced me during my youth. Uh, the first one was Troy Rutman. Rutman was a teenage prodigy. He was winning races on the West Coast when he was 15 years old. Troy was an underage rookie in 1949 at he was only 19 years old when he qualified for his first 500, and he won the race in 1952. To this day, Troy Rutman is the youngest winner of the Indy 500 ever. Uh, he was noted for his hard-charging driving style, and many up-and-coming drivers of that era, such as Parnelli Jones, A.J. Foyt, Dan Gurney, they all revered Troy. He quit racing and at only 34 years of age in 1964. The other driver that I was a fan of was Lloyd Ruby, a proud Texan who hailed from Wichita Falls. Rube debuted on motorcycles, then switched to midgets and also raced and won in sports cars. He debuted at Indy in 1960 and he finished third in 1964. In 1966, he led 68 laps and had nearly a lap lead when a camp stud failed. In 1968, he was battling Joe Leonard and eventual winner Bobby Unzer. Rube was leading when a coil wire failed. His final heartbreak occurred in 1969. He stormed from 20th starting position to take the lead. While leading, he pitted for fuel. Unfortunately, he had a miscommunication with his crew and pulled away with the fuel hose attached and tore open the fuel cell. Great, great stories, Tim. You know, we've talked in sports about certain barriers being broken. For example, in track and field, Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile way back when. But in terms of IndyCar racing and the increasing speed that we've seen over the years, would you know who was the first to break certain marks, like 100 mile an hour, 150 mile an hour at the track? Sure. Um, nineteen nineteen. Rene Thomas, he had a he was a previous 500 winner. Uh, he was the first driver to qualify over 100 miles an hour. I think in 1919 he qualified like 104.7 miles an hour, I believe. Uh, Peter DePaulo, he won the race, the 500 mile race in 1925. He was the first to average over 100 miles an hour for 500 miles. Uh, in 1960, interestingly. Uh, the 150 mile an hour barrier was uh, supposedly insurmountable. And Eddie Sachs qualified on the pole that year at 146 miles an hour. On the fourth day of qualifying, uh, a young guy named Jim Hurtabies went on to the track. And he had, wasn't an unknown. He was a rookie at the Speedway, but he had won an IndyCar race the previous fall at, at Sacramento, California. So he was a comer. But Hurtabies went out on the fourth day of qualifying and set the racing world on its ear. He he turned a lap at 149.6, which is three miles an hour faster than the pole and right at 150. Uh, and Parnelli Jones, two years later in 1962, he was the one that broke the 150 mile an hour barrier. And in 1977, Tom Sneva, 
Interestingly, Tom had crashed his car the day before, and his crew had to work all night to fix it. But he rewarded them on the first day of qualifying in 1977. Tom Sneva broke the 200-mile-an-hour barrier. Uh, I think the 500-mile record speed uh, was set last year by Helio Castro Neves. I think he, for 500 miles, he averaged 190 miles an hour. So that's the 500-mile record right now. Oh, amazing speed. And what do you attribute these increases in speed? Is it better engines, uh, better drivers, better tires? As one who's been in the pits, what would that be? Well, it's technology, definitely. I don't think, I mean, racing has changed a lot over the years. Uh, it's become very corporate. I don't give a hoot about that. A good race car <laughs> driver is, they're, those kids today drive as hard as anybody ever did. So I attribute it to technology. I mean, like in the 70s. Uh, 1970, Al Unser was on the pole at 170 miles an hour. Two years later, his brother Bobby Unser put the Olsen Eyed Eagle of Dan Gurney on the pole at 195. He had a lap almost 196. So in two years, they jumped 26 miles an hour. Oh, wow. I mean, they, they had wings were made legal, and they ran uh, wings front and rear which allowed them to, back then, you could adjust the turbocharger boost. There was no limit on how much you could run. And those cars back then for qualifying, they twist them up to 1,200 horsepower. And it, they were just like astronomical leaping speed, almost 30 miles an hour over two years is a lot. And they had a lot of accidents and, and they lost, some drivers lost their lives and they, they, ins they instituted some changes to the regulations on wings and turbocharger boosts and things like that. But Speed always has – technology is uh, – the track record in Indianapolis area line dike holds it, I believe, is like 237 miles an hour. They've reduced the horsepower enormously on these cars today. And uh, it's not going to call them spec cars, but they sort of are. You, a lot of what you run on the cars, you can't, you can't just say, hey, we're going to try a different wing or a different aerodynamic piece. I mean, they even have limits on the wheelbase you can run and things like that. I know I'm getting technical, but uh, the reason the speeds have went up over the years is definitely because of technology. And so you just mentioned sometimes is the speed too fast? Have there been efforts over the years to reduce the speed? Well, uh, in 1973, uh, like I said, Bobby Unzer ran 195.6 and in 1972 and 70 and Jim Malloy was killed in qualifying in 72. And then in 1973, they're flirting with 200 miles an hour. Johnny Rutherford won the pole at 198. I mean, he had one lap at 199, but Art Pollard was killed in qualifying that morning. And then in the race, Sweet Savage had a horrible accident and he was killed. He died a month after the accident, but they decided uh, what they did was the cars in those days held 75 gallons of fuel. They had fuel tanks on both sides. They took the fuel out of the right side of the car and put an energy-absorbing uh, material inside where the fuel cell had been. And, and so they're now just carrying fuel on the left-hand side. They reduced the width of the wings, and they also reduced uh, turbocharger boost. So they, over the years, uh, yeah, they do step in and uh, to slow the cars down. But engineers and chief mechanics are always looking at ways to improve. And um, sometimes I can just say you just get around it by working hard and trying different things uh, in technology. 
And it's, it's amazing that the the attraction, the need for speed, so to speak, over all the years has become such a phenomenon at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Why is the Indy 500 itself such an attraction? Why has it maintained this popularity over decades? Well, there's there's nothing like the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Like I said earlier, the track was built in 1909. That's 113 years ago. And the configuration of the track has never changed. The front and the back straightaway are both five-eighths of a mile long. The short shoots in between the four corners are an eighth of a mile long. The corners are all one-quarter mile, and they're banked nine degrees. That has never changed. Uh, if you stand or sit in the grandstand coming off turn four, and you look down the front straightaway at the pagoda on the scoring tower, which is about 10 stories high on the inside of the track, and the double deck grandstand with the, as it turns into turn one, uh, there's no sight like it in racing. And when that's filled with people on race day and the Purdue marching band is playing on the banks of the Wabash, they're playing taps. The Indy 500 is a, almost a spiritual experience. It's a very emotional. I've seen drivers sitting in their cars before they said, gentlemen, start your engine. They play taps. Eddie Sachs every year was a great race car driver. He ran second at Indy in 61 to A.J. Foyt. Every year he would have tears running down his face uh, when they played taps. It's a tribute to our uh, – it's a Memorial Day. It's a tribute to our, our troops and our country. And uh, when you get – back in the 70s, they probably had 400,000 people there. Um, they've reduced capacity there a little bit, and I don't think they let as many people in the infield, but they still got to be close to 300,000 people there. It's just an unbelievable experience to go to Indianapolis. Anybody that hasn't been there, uh, I'd highly recommend it. It is, a, it is an experience of a lifetime. It's amazing. And you having been there both as a fan and working the 500 had to be incredible. I was going to ask you, you grew up in Indy, basically. You talked about the attraction of the 500 in town how everybody gets behind it. What's your personally, what's your greatest memory of the 500, either before, during, or after your own career? I worked on a team. uh, I worked on a couple of teams where we were in contention to win the race. I never worked on a team that won the race. Uh, I was working on Gordon Johncock's crew in 1981, and he led 56 laps that day and was running second with six laps to go when the engine broke, which was a real disappointment. And Michael Andretti, I worked with him, and Michael Andretti is one of the greatest race car drivers of all time, in my estimation. Uh, I've always told people, if I was going to go back to Indianapolis, they said you can have anybody drive the car that you work on, I'd, I'd want to go with Michael. He is magnificent. He led, he led 400 and some laps there and didn't win the race. That doesn't matter to me. Uh, but some, of the, I had a lot of disappointments. He was leading – he led 160-some laps in 1990. Uh, he ran a lap in 1992 at 229 miles an hour during the race. Um, he just dominated the race and with 10 laps to go, the, a rubber belt inside the engine broke and coasted oh. to a stop. That, that was one of the most painful memories of my life, uh, of my racing career. It was. But if you want to talk about things that I remember uh, that were joyful moments for me, at the speedway, I'd have to go back to how I started in racing. And that was, I toured the country and helping 
I, I was a sprint car racer on dirt tracks and I worked for a couple of sprint car legends. Uh, I worked with Jan Opperman who, who ran at Indianapolis and a guy named Bubby Jones. They were like my mentors and friends and they were great race car drivers and they went from the dirt tracks and the county fairs of this country and they got hired at Indianapolis. They brought their helmet bags and they got hired because they were great race car drivers. Nowadays, most drivers bring money to buy a ride. Um. But those guys, and when they brought me there uh, and they qualified for the 500, it was uh, Jan in 1976. He got bumped out of the field on Sunday morning and a guy approached him and owned a car and offered him a ride. And Jan, it was a magic what he did that day. He, uh, he made some changes to the car incrementally and, uh, and he got pulled away at six o'clock as the gun went off, just as qualifying ended. And he got faster with every lap and he bumped his way into the field. And I got to be there with him. And that was a magnificent experience for me. And then 77, Bubby Jones took me to Indianapolis and he drove for Longhorn Racing out of Midlands, Texas. And Bobby Hillen was the owner. And he told Bub that Bub drove his sprint car for him, and Bobby Hillen had an Indy car and a spare Indy car. And he told Bub that if George Snyder, uh, his number one Indy car driver, got the car in the race on the first day of qualifying, that he would put Bub in the backup for the next weekend. Well, Bubby got the job done on Sunday afternoon, uh, and he qualified and bumped his way in, got faster with every lap. And those two years for me to – go from riding in pickup trucks, going to dirt track races from coast to coast with these two guys. And they both took me to the speedway with them. And I got to experience qualifying for the race. I will never forget those moments. And, uh, they further intoxicated me about the speedway and, uh, I'll just never forget those days. Oh, what wonderful memories. And of course the, the gentleman that helped you out and got you started, of course, you're probably best known for your long tenure with Newman Haas racing uh, the success that team had. And in recent years, and you've mentioned some of the names like Mears and the Uncers and A.J. Foyt, the Andrettis, Ray Halls, they've all had great success at the 500 and in IndyCar racing. But in your opinion, being a loyal and experienced team member, is it the team or the driver that has the biggest impact on that team's success on the track? Well, I got to admit, I hung around racing a long time. I went to work at Newman Haas when I was 36 years old for Paul Newman and Carl Haas. And uh, Paul let Carl run the team, and Carl was one smart cookie. And one thing I learned from Carl Haas, the first thing Carl Haas would do, and he believed that the, the absolutely the first person you hire for your race team is, is a great race car driver. Because you can have the best equipment, the best chassis, the best engine, a great engineering staff, a crack pit crew that prepares the car so it'll run 500 miles and then get over the wall and have flawless pit stops. I mean, you can have all of that. And if you don't have a guy to push the button, that's what's, that's the number one thing I think still to this day about a racing team. You got to have a race car driver to build around the team around. And I learned that from Carl Haas. Oh, man, those are great words. Thank you. I've always wanted to ask you that question. And another big question. Let's say you're starting up in the Indianapolis 500. There's 300,000 people looking at you. What's the biggest fear of a crew member before a race? Uh, you just don't want to screw up. If you're a guy that's going over the wall, uh, you know, I mean, 
it's amazing when you make a pit stop on an Indy car as a crew member. I remember going over, getting over the wall and changing Michael Andretti or Nigel Mansell's right rear tire and pushing the car away at the end of the stop. And I go over to the wall and I couldn't breathe anymore. I mean, my heart rate went up uh-huh. like 50 beats a minute. Um, but you just got to, you got to concentrate. And I, and if you're really, you get going in the race and make a couple pit stops, it's almost like it happens in slow motion. I mean, it really, it really does. I mean, you practice all year long for that. I mean, every race you go to, if you watch the IndyCar teams, car comes in from a practice run at any track on any given circuit they run, they're changing tires. So they work at it all year. But when you get to Indy and the eyes of the world, so to speak, are on you, it is a different experience. But to me, it was just go out there and, and you're in your own world. And to me, it was, it was my reward for all the hard work you got, you did on the car. I raced on dirt tracks some myself, and that was just like racing a car to me, that you're actually influencing your cars on time, the track, the, the amount of time the car's on the track. You're When you're in the pits, and you come in, you do a – you can follow a guy in the racetrack. Uh, your driver can follow and race a guy for 20 laps and not be able to get around him and finally do that. And he comes in for a pit stop, and if a guy has a bad tire change – you not only go back out behind him, but there's five or six more guys. And the old saying about racing is that races are won and lost in the pits. A lot of pressure on those guys in the pits. Uh, Indianapolis pit area, especially. I like the length of the pit boxes there. They're about 50 feet long. You got room for the cars to get in and out, but it's very narrow. And they've changed the rules over the years. Uh, Probably 25 years ago, they went to where now when the yellow flag comes out, They'll bring all the cars in together. They'll bunch them all up first, so they all come in together. And uh, it gets pretty hairy out there with crossovers, cars coming in over your nose, your car going out around the guy that's changing the front tire in front of you. It's pretty darn hectic. And uh, there's there's nothing like it. I don't know. It was, uh, it was a great part of my life, and, and I enjoyed every second of it. <laughs> well. And you just hit on the head the dangers that are there for the crew member. And I'm going to ask you one of those personal questions, but have you ever been injured as a member of the, during the race as a member of the uh, pit crew? Yeah, I, I got run over a couple times. Uh, I got hit in Australia uh, one year. I was lucky I didn't break anything, but I changed the tire the next week in Long Beach when we flew back. So, I mean, it was screwed up my ankle a little bit, but. Um, I got hit in the pits at Mid-Ohio one day. The driver locked the brakes up and uh, slid into me when I was (laughs) – but, you know, if you're going to – there's an old saying about drivers. If you race cars, you're going to crash cars. You know, if you're going to be out in the pits, uh, things can happen, and you just accept it, and uh, and you go on. And uh, I don't know. I I enjoyed it, and it was was the most fun part of my job was being over the wall, and I miss it a lot. (laughs) Oh, geez. So dangerous. Hey, I'm going to ask you another one of those questions. You don't have to name names, Tim, but what's the biggest mistake you've ever seen a crew make during a pit stop? You know, when when mistakes happen in pit stops, I mean, one guy can make a mistake, but racing is the ultimate team sport. And usually, I mean, if a guy loses a wheel nut, uh, a jack guy can drop the car down and the guy's still trying to put the nut on the car or the guy at the front of the car can wave the guy out. I mean, I was involved in a couple not-so-pleasant situations over the wall. I'm just – 
racing is the ultimate team sport and pointing fingers. Uh, I mean, unless someone is just totally incapable of doing the job, most guys over the wall, they wouldn't be there if they weren't capable of doing the job. So, I mean, there's a lot. I mean, if you talk about stuff that can happen crazy during the races, I'm not going to mention any names, but there was a very famous race driver one year. He was rookie year at the Speedway and he started the 500. He was so nervous he didn't strap his helmet. So, oh, there's a Indies, the eyes of the world being on you and all the pressure and everything. Crazy things can happen out there. But pit stops are. They're an integral part of what goes on, and uh, they're every bit as much as influential as, as the guy that's out there driving the car. It's a total team sport. Oh, excellent. Excellent observations. So in your opinion, Tim, you've been following IndyCar racing for many, many years. The present looks great. What's the future for the Indy 500 look like? I would say never better. Uh, Roger Penske, who owns the Speedway, um, Indy's his passion in life. I mean, he's incredibly successful. Uh, he loves racing. Um, Rogers, I believe his father took him there when he was a teenager in the early 50s. You see pictures in the early 60s of Roger on the grid just before the start of the race talking to Dan Gurney and A.J. Foyt. And people don't understand Roger Penske was a pretty darn good race car driver. Uh, Roger Penske drove Formula One. Uh, Roger Penske hmm. drove stock cars. Uh, before Mario Andretti got hired to drive for Dean Van Lines, Mario's uh, first IndyCar ride, uh, which he won his first couple championships and pole positions at Indianapolis with, Roger Penske was in consideration to be the driver. Uh, but the, the story on Roger is that he, he's a graduate of Lehigh University. He's a very intelligent man, uh, influential. Uh, he wanted to get a GM car dealership and they told him no racing. And Roger decided then he was going to be a car owner. I mean, over the years, everything he's done, Trans Am, Can-Am, Indianapolis, he had a Formula One team. He now owns a championship NASCAR team and he owns the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. He loves racing and I don't think that the track could be in better hands. And the future is, I mean, he's Roger Penske is, if you've seen that place, what he's done to it in the last couple of years, it speaks for itself. So, Indianapolis 500, I would say it's it's the only way to look is up. Tim, thank you. Thank you very much. And we're really looking forward to future episodes with you. In fact, our next episode, which will be released by the Sports History Network prior to the Indianapolis 500. Tim, you've agreed to take us down in the pits, and we're going to talk about things about what goes on there, who makes decisions any superstitions by crew members, etc. How does the team travel? We'll get to some of those. But uh, before we go today, any other observations on the history of the 500 you'd like to share, Tim? Uh, just it's always exciting when May comes around. Uh, the eyes of the racing world and the sporting world, I don't care. The whole country, you know, Indianapolis is, is very, very special. The Indianapolis 500 is iconic. Because of my career, I got to travel to just every continent except Africa. And all you had to do is say you're from Indianapolis. People's eyebrows would go up because they know they know all about it. I would just say that the month of May is here. And uh, it's every year, it never changes. It's spring in Indy, and, uh, and the racing fever is there. And uh, look forward to a great month of May. 
Oh, thank you, Tim. And we look forward to our next episode of Tim Coffeen Talks IndyCar and Racing History. Until then, check out the other programs that are on the Sports History Network and look for that next episode before the Indianapolis 500. Thank you, Tim. Joe, thank you so much. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast. We'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time, as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.